he could be silenced, um, but and, and they could take away his voice, but they could not uh, take away his humanity and his dignity. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor, joined as always by my co-host, David Canfield, EW's movies editor. Hi, David. Hi, Clarissa. This week, we're going to start talking the SAG Awards and the ensembles nominated this year. One such cast is The Trial of the Chicago 7, and its scene-stealer, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, joins us later on the show to discuss his performance and working with such a phenomenal group of actors. But first, we're taking a brief break from Oscar results predicting and turning our attention towards the ceremony itself. In this very strange year, it feels like there are so few and yet so many ways to safely hold an Oscar ceremony that amounts to more than a Zoom happy hour. So what will the Oscars look like this year? To get into this, we're joined by EW writer Maureen Lee Lanker. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, David. Hi, Maureen. Happy to have you. (laughs) There's no one we could have for this topic but Maureen. Oh, I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, let's start by outlining what we know so far. Um, There had been some reporting that the Oscars were going to move to Union Station, uh, given, I suppose, the size. Um, And then on the nominations telecast uh, a week ago, uh, Nick Jonas and Priyanka Chopra Jonas uh, announced that the ceremony will take place at both the typical Dolby Theater um, and and indeed Union Station. Um, I feel like at EW, when the Union Station reporting started coming out, everyone was just like, why? <laughs> um, yes. But, but um, before we sort of get into where this ranks, perhaps, in, in, in Oscars history and, and the evolution of the ceremony, Maureen, how do, you, how do you feel about how this is shaping up? You know, I'm just really intrigued to see what's going to happen because um, Union Station is a completely different venue from any type of venue the Oscars have ever used before in that it's a train station. It's a train. (laughs) I mean, it's been used. It, it, it has a really integral part in Hollywood history. It opened in 1939, which, uh, people consider to also be the greatest year in, uh, in Hollywood history, or at least when it comes to, to classic Hollywood and the studio system. Um, so it has a really interesting tie there in terms of, Los Angeles's history overall. And of course, it's been used in countless films and television shows and commercials. Um, So it'll be a very recognizable venue to people who watch a lot of film and television. But but it's not a stage. It's not a theater. And I just don't know how that's going to work. And supposedly, it is not going to disrupt transit or transportation services in the city, which... I don't understand. (laughs) I I don't actually believe that that's not going to happen. I mean, how do you hold this huge, massive event, even in, you know, in a smaller socially distanced way without disrupting, you know, transportation? (laughs) I'm really interested overall to see just how much this choice is going to displace or disrupt the local community because uh, Union Station is in downtown Los Angeles. It definitely has a large unhoused population that generally um, 
makes use of the fact that it's a large public open space uh, to get, you know, away from the elements or things like that. And of course, Hollywood Boulevard sort of does street street sweeping, I guess is a terrible way to put it when they put up barriers in the carpet and everything for the Dolby traditionally. But it does seem like both on the transportation side and people who rely on public transit and just the greater community at large who uses Union Station on a daily basis, it, it, it seems like it's going to put a lot of people out, at least for a day or a couple of days, however long their setup takes. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by whether whether the stars that are attending in Union Station will actually take public transportation to the show, because it seems like that would be the most efficient way of doing it. I doubt uh, it, but they're going to do it. I highly doubt time. it, Clarissa. <laughs> I, I highly doubt we're going to see Viola Davis in her Armani gown. <laughs> isn't, isn't there someone who did do that? Uh, I feel like I read that in, in, in doing research for this show. Like some, somebody Ed Begley Jr. Yeah, did. Yeah. yeah, but to the uh, Dolby. And then he had to walk because the there actually is a station at Hollywood and Highland directly underneath the mall that the right. Dolby is in, right, but right, it was right. closed during the Oscars <laughs> for security reasons. Uh, so he took it to like the next closest station on the red line, which I think is Vine, and walked <laughs> down to the Hollywood and Highland. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested. I kind of wondered if Steven Soderbergh, he has a fondness for transportation in his mm -hmm. work. Like he uses mm -hmm. it in really interesting ways in his films. And since he's producing, I just have to think that he's going to want to use that somehow in the presentation, whether it's for a bit or having stars arrive on it in some sort of capacity. Um, it, it seems odd to me that you would choose that as a locale and then not make use of that. They've brought in a very creative team to execute this, which has me maybe not optimistic, but um, very curious and eager to see what they're planning and in terms of where the nominees will go and how they are planning on. I mean, I, I imagine that there are very specific plans for each of the venues. I don't know that, you know, it's not going to be like Amy and Tina doing the Golden Globes where they're just kind of very inelegantly <laughs> lobbing back and forth. I, I do think that there's probably a specific intention here in terms mm -hmm. of how they want to break the show up. Um, but Maureen, as our, as our resident Hollywood history expert, walk us through um, just the ceremony, putting this in context in terms of how things have evolved. You sort of mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the venue itself will be, will have some significance uh, to Hollywood, but, you know, in terms of how, the ceremony itself has moved around. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? Because um, the Oscars have been at the Dolby, formerly known as the Kodak, since 2001. So just about two decades. And that was specifically constructed with the Oscars in mind and being a home for the Oscars. And when it opened, it was declared the permanent home and presumably will be going forward. But who knows? Uh, permanence is not really a thing in Hollywood um, or Los Angeles <laughs> at large when it comes to history. We're not very good at that. Um, so uh, so for a generation, the Oscars haven't been anywhere but the Dolby, uh, you know. Um, so I think for some people, this might be jarring or strange. But overall, the Oscars have been at 
gosh, over a dozen locations in their history, and they've really changed in shape and format and done many different things. The first ceremony was in 1929, and it was at the Roosevelt Hotel, which is actually just catty corner to the Dolby Theater on Hollywood and Highland and still standing. And it was in a ballroom there, the Blossom Ballroom. And that was a very different setup. It was a banquet with a dinner and the handing out of awards was almost secondary to the proceedings. It only took 15 minutes and the winners had been announced three months prior. Uh, So it was really just more of a celebratory banquet um, and very little ceremony going on. And it stayed a banquet at hotels for for many years until 1944. Um, And it was at various hotels in Los Angeles, the Biltmore and the Ambassador. And then it finally moved to being more of a of a theatrical presentation and the kind of show, live show that we're accustomed to today in 1944 when it was at Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is also at Hollywood and Highland. <laughs> so very significant location in right. terms of Oscar history and the and the Dolby half of that. Um, and then it moved around a bunch. It was at the Pantages. It was at the Dorothy Chandler in downtown. It was at the Shrine Theater. Uh, it was at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, as anyone who watched Feud will definitely know because <laughs> it was very memorably recreated there. Yes. Um, so it's been all over the city from from the west side to downtown to Hollywood proper. Uh, and so Union Station is really a continuation of that. I, I do find it interesting that uh, they opted not to do what the Golden Globes did and try something by coastal or even something global and having yeah. something in London or something like that. Because it, that would not be new either. Uh, in the 50s, they did by coastal broadcasts from 53 to 57. Mm. At, and there were two theaters in New York uh, where they would simulcast from in addition to being at the Pantages. And they would have a different host there And it was actually weird because, you know, the Oscars are at five o'clock now on Pacific Coast time. So eight o'clock Eastern time. But they actually wouldn't start until seven then. So there would be 10 Eastern time. And that was done purposefully because most of the actors that would attend the ceremony in New York were on Broadway. And then they would go after their show to the ceremony at this bi-coastal broadcast. Um, And so they they would definitely look like more tired and a lot less glamorous. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, when she won in 54 for Roman Holiday, her first Oscar as a newcomer, she was in Dean on Broadway. And there's this great photo of her uh, taking off a blonde wig in the back of a taxi <laughs> uh, and changing into her clothes to go to the Oscar ceremony at like 10 o'clock at night. It's it's wild. So I am interested that in the fact that they're doing... Uh, multiple locations, but they're both in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, the the other part of it, I think that's very clear, because I remember like a couple months ago, the whole idea of a global bi-coastal Oscars was very much alive. And I, I do wonder if the Golden Globes, and just how poorly that was received and really how badly it was done. I think it could have been done a lot better. And I think Steven Soderbergh and co would have had a better crack at it. But I think that sort of soured a lot of people on the idea of attempting something like that. The other part is perhaps a little bit of pandemic optimism. Um, 
and just what the world will look like and what star's comfort level will be. You know, we're still, you know, a little over a month away from the Oscars and things have already started opening up in a way we haven't seen in over yeah. a year, um, which is notable. I mean, it, it, it's definitely a shift and I think an encouraging sign for people who are putting on the Oscars. Um, I think you're right. I think also, um, you know, there'd been a lot of talk. Billy Eichner most famously had suggested that we use the Hollywood Bowl for the Oscars. Right. And in a lot of ways, that seems like the perfect pandemic venue that or Dodger Stadium. I also saw mentioned, even though it's being used as a uh, the largest vaccination center in the country currently. <laughs> right, so right. that might that might present that a challenge. <laughs> but um but, you know, outdoors, lots of space to distance, lots of seating and a stage. Uh, but, you know, for Los Angeles, even though this is several months later than it, it typically is in the year, it seems to always rain Oscar weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can bet that Union Station kind of the way it's designed gives them the opportunity to have plans for outdoor components but adapt to indoor if they must. And I, I'm kind of wondering if that's part of its appeal, mm. that it has that transitional space so that they can sort of try to have some stuff outside. But if the weather doesn't agree, they can quickly and easily move inside, whereas the Hollywood Bowl would certainly not allow for something like that. Mm. Earlier, Maureen, you and I had talked a little bit about the Academy Museum and, and how they might uh, incorporate that. You have, you have, virtually toured it uh <laughs> i toured it in person a you year ago you've done it all you've done pre and post pandemic um how do you see any way it might it might factor in here um i'm honestly really surprised that that hasn't been something that's been more in the mix or hasn't been announced because they have a really beautiful outdoor courtyard space on the ground level um, that we definitely saw as part of our in-person tour. And they also have indoor sp theater space. And so if they were going to choose multiple locations and just have minimal numbers of people in each, it seems like a natural way to promote the museum, which is was supposed to open on the day of the Oscars this year, April 25th, and now has been postponed to a fall opening because of the pandemic. Um, well, Maureen, so, though, hasn't it been, I feel like it's been oh, slated to it, open for a year, for years that now. That project, least, <laughs> it's, it's, I, the, the, I, it feels kind of cursed. Like, I, it, I'm really optimistic about <laughs> what it's going to actually be now because it looks gorgeous and they've poured so much effort and money and thought into it. And I think we have needed a museum for film history. It's something really, really important and it's taken way longer than it should have to make this mm -hmm. happen. But it does feel cursed. Like that thing has been delayed so many times. The opening's been pushed back years and years and years over the process. And the pandemic, unfortunately, was just another act of God that delayed their process even more. Um, but it's done. It's ready. It was ready to open. So I don't really know why the Academy hasn't announced a plan to, to use it in the broadcast as well, because it, it seems like some natural synergy or, or good opportunity to mm -hmm. remind the world that it's there. And once things are open again, people should come visit. Yeah, I expect it to factor in in some way. Um, but I think that we have a lot that we don't know, um, yeah. which is kind of exciting you know, for a change. It is it is 
a call for innovation. Um, and one could say that the Oscars sometimes haven't risen to that occasion as much mm -hmm. as they should have, especially in years past. Um, so I suppose we will see what happens. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Clarissa's interview with Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Here is my interview with SAG nominee Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Enjoy. Welcome, Yaya. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, well, let's get right into it. Um, the Trial of Chicago 7, fantastic movie. Thank and um, it deals it deals with the riots that took place during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Um, it's a peaceful protest that escalated because of the police. Um, and it definitely resonates in, in today's world. Is that sort of what one of the things that attracted you to the project? Um, spot on. I think it was one of those projects that was... Um, uh, uh, very, very timely, you know, even though I got the project in what I got it in, um, the middle of 2019, you know, it was one of those projects that was still important for the world at that time. But even after coming on and after finishing the project, you know, we had no idea what it would eventually turn into. Uh, of course, other than the, the content of the project itself was, uh, the chance to be a part of an Aaron Sorkin project with amazing writing. Um, and to get into the room with a with a stacked cast, that was really, I think, uh, an actor's dream. Definitely one of my uh, dreams to to get a, opposite uh, Mark Rylance and Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Frank Langella, you know, and the like. It was it was just a a room full of extraordinary talent, and uh, and and I was excited to get into that really good company and to tell a very important story as well. Um, did you know much about Bobby Seale's story before before you took this role? I knew some that definitely taking on the role gave me an opportunity to get more extensive with the knowledge that I did uh, did have. Uh, but I grew up in Oakland, California, uh, just uh, uh, not even a mile away from Defermi Park, and, and you, you know, which was one of the sites of a lot of the Black Panthers uh, programs at that time. And uh, Bobby Seal is definitely an outspoken, charismatic figure in the Bay Area, Oakland community. So um, for me, this. This, another thing that attracted me to this was a chance to go and sort of put on for the, you know, for Oakland, and, you know, to show that uh, Oakland hometown pride in this project as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, your performance is fantastic. And one of the things that really um, resonated with me while I was watching is that I think you did a lot without saying a lot. And, um, and I'm wondering, as you were making decisions as an actor for your performance, I mean, what did you decide to hold back? What did you decide to not, and um, what sort of choices did you make? Yeah, well, Bobby's entire performance was a negotiation. You know, he was, um, he had something to say, but he was given, he was in the restrictions of, uh, of courts. So to speak would automatically jeopardize um, the freedom that he didn't have. You know, um, it, it would jeopardize his, his chance at freedom. Um, so every time he spoke, there was a negotiation because he should not have been speaking out of turn, so to speak. And, and so uh, I think that whole that that whole performance was about a negotiation between when do I speak up? Um, how do I speak up? How do I make sure that my voice is heard? And then when it gets to the point where my voice is not being heard, what am I willing to do? What must I do? Um, in order to ensure that uh, that that I have my humanity and my dignity at the end of the day, 
because he could be silenced, um, but and, and they could take away his voice, but they could not uh, take away his humanity and his dignity, and, that, and that's what I was fighting for, uh, you know, throughout the entire film. Which means that sometimes he's going to be incredibly frustrated. Which means that sometimes he's going to have to have to be patient. Other times he's going to be completely dejected and completely over it. So I, I loved uh, playing with his body language and showing when he was extremely invested and when he was when he had no belief in the system at all and when he was in complete disbelief versus when he was um, infuriated and how his desire to be free and how his desire to be heard uh, caused him to to travel through those different forms of physical and, and vocal negotiation, I think. I think that's very apparent and, and powerful because I think mm -hmm. just as much can be communicated when things are unsaid as when they are said. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, I read or I'm not sure if I read or just saw a show where, where you spoke about how, you know, Aaron Sorkin is, is a writer and, and, and obviously his scripts are amazing, but the character of Bobby was actually the one that stayed most closely to the court transcripts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what was actually said during the trial. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, why mm -hmm. do you think that that is? And can you speak a little bit about that? As amazing as, as Aaron is, he's also very smart and, uh, and intuitive and knows when he's not going to overwrite a scene. You know, he knows what to add and what to take away. I think when you look at the transcript, uh, the story was very delicate and the, and the story was very important. I think that this was an aspect of the story that didn't require taking very many uh, liberties. And Aaron was aware of that. And so I think there's something to be said in letting the actual, or as much as the actual dialogue and the actual exchange uh, from from the actual court transcript with the interactions between Bobby Seale and Judge Hoffman take place in our film, because it shows how poorly he was treated. You know, it gives us the, it gives us the ability to say, hey, we're not making this up. You know, um, this is true, and it comes right directly from the transcript. So it really just highlights the mistreatment of Bobby Seale throughout that throughout that trial. Um, and then Aaron, I think, very beautifully uh, set the story up so that that could shine through in the narrative um, as well. Speaking about his experience, I mean, one of the most difficult scenes to watch was the one where he was beaten and bound and gagged and by order mm -hmm. of the judge. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me what it was like filming that scene, and I understand that was also filmed on the 50th anniversary of Fred Hampton's death. Um, yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, so what did that feel like, and, and uh, did you think of that while you were filming? A little bit. You know, I tried not to cloud my head with so much, but it's hard not to, you know, when you have that looming in the air. And it wasn't something that was planned. It was something that was, you know, we looked up and, and we realized that that's where we were on that day. You know, to me, I take that as a gift. You know, I take that as a, as, as a gift from Fred Hampton, a gift from the guys to say that, hey, um, you're in an important moment in history right now. You're in an important moment of storytelling. And we're going to make sure that you have everything that you need, all the ammunition that you need in order to tell this important moment and to bring this important moment, you know, uh, to life. So I knew that there was a responsibility to be an advocate for Bobby Seale, to be an advocate for all of the uh, uh, black men, incarcerated men, uh, men and women who have uh, been unfairly silenced by the system. Um, and so I put all of those things on me and in myself. And more importantly, I had something to say. You know, I, if, if the script tells me that I'm going to be silenced and beaten and uh, bound and gagged, then as an actor, 
then I have to have something to say. If they're going to take away my ability to speak, then it means that what I have to say has to be more powerful than what they're going to attempt to take away or the circumstance that I'm going to find myself in. For me, that was my humanity, along with Bobby Seale's humanity, because I was an advocate for him, uh, dignity, and the ability to say that I am a man, I'm a human being, and I'm, I'm a citizen of the United States, and I deserve all of the rights that uh, are afforded to me as a man, as a human, as a citizen of the United States. And it, it is not the power within the power of another man, of another human, to take that away from me. So I think Bobby Seale was really after dignity, and I, and I was after dignity myself on those days. And, 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 and um, I, I wanted to go through that scene um, in a way that allowed me to, to, um, to be um, victorious in the end. And, and, rather than be, being seen as, um, as a victim. Um, have you watched the film more recently? I mean, I know it was filmed yeah. before, before um, you know, all of the events of the summer. I mean, how, how was it, was it more resonant for you this, this time or when you watched it more recently or was it, um, I mean, how, how was that experience? Yeah, it, it, it definitely, it definitely um, has grown and changed in, you know, in importance. We thought that it was going to be a, a, a film about getting out and making sure that you vote. I thought that it was going to be a film that told people that the form of activism that would be uh, motivated from that film would be getting out to vote. And that was when we were making it in 2019. And the summer of 2020 comes and it, and it really changes. And now we're talking about moral courage and sacrifice and uh, protest and questioning peaceful protest versus other forms of uh, protest in order in order to get our our points across and so it just grew so much you know the meaning of this film and i think that it even has the ability you know to continue to grow and to continue to inspire you know one thing for sure that comes out of this movie is that when it comes to revolution when it comes to change everybody uh has different responsibilities uh but we all know wrong when we see it and that's when courage comes into place. And so, you know, I, I hope that this film, my hope for this film is that it, it, it brings us face to face with our own ideas of courage. And so that we look within ourselves and to say, what does courage mean to me? And what am I willing to do in order to make sure that the world is a better place for myself and, you know, for my community and for the future? It's it's so interesting you say that and and as for your own your own I guess responsibility as an actor I mean a, a lot the recent choices you made for for films and TV we, Watchmen Candyman um, mm -hmm. Trial they all seem to have um, historical roots in different ways do you feel a responsibility as an actor to sort of seek out these kinds of projects or is it just the way that it's it's happened recently I think it's a little bit of both I think it's um, there's an there's an appetite. I think I've also been been selective with the material that I work on. I want to work on material that says something about the world, that says something about humanity. Um, I want to work on projects that give me a good um, acting acting experience, you know. Um, and in terms of responsibility, I think that my responsibility is to stay true to myself and to use my art to uh, to speak to the things that I value. And, you know, right now that's a freedom, that's ideas of human rights, freedom of expression, and making sure that we tell stories that reveal black people as humans, as complete humans, that we live in a world without limitations. And so our stories should also reflect that. We should be able to, to live in the world of the Matrix, and we should be able to live in the world of Candyman and Aquaman and the trial of the Chicago 7. And I think the narrative about my career 
hopefully the narrative about my career is about freedom. You know, it's about freedom of choice and removing obstacles or removing uh, labels that that are designed to uh, limit, you know, um, how we're perceived out into the world. So I think that's part of my responsibility as an actor to tell stories that eventually tell the message that we have freedom, artistic freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of how we how we choose to live. And and whether that be a political uh, project, a project like the Charlie Chicago 7, a project like Watchmen or a project like Aquaman or Mad Max or The Matrix or something like that. I think the through line, hopefully, of my work is uh, freedom. And that's sort of the responsibility that I put upon myself. Absolutely. And and it shows in, in your choices. On that note, some of the other movies that you mentioned, Matrix, Aquaman, Mad Max, I mean, definitely more, I guess, physical preparation for those kinds of roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine. Uh, I've seen your men's health videos where <laughs> where you've mm-hmm. talked about some of the things that you do to prepare just physically for these, these yeah. roles. How is that different when approaching a character like Bobby, where, where it's not so much about the physical prep? You know, as an actor, I mean, does that sort of, I hate to say flex different muscles, but is that part of what attracts you to different things like that? Yeah, well, uh, this one kept me up at night and woke me up in the morning for different reasons, you know, for other films. And, and I, I, I do the same amount of, I, see, I do the same type of work on all of my projects. For this one, I didn't have to, you know, going to the gym wasn't, wasn't a part of the, the Bobby Seal regimen, but it was a part of the regimen of making sure that my instrument was in tune, making sure that my instrument was always in preparation. So physically, I'm always in preparation for something. It's just a matter of the degree to which I have to get big or smaller or flexible or something like that. So that was a part of my regimen. But this one was really, uh, I added into the regiment going to the library, you know, uh, spending time looking at history books, looking, you know, reading about history, uh, making sure that I align myself with the things that Bobby Seale cares about and cared about during those times. This was much more of a intellectual feat than more the the brawny feats of something like an Aquaman or, you know, more the, the action movies. And I enjoyed that. You know, I enjoyed getting, you know, heavy into the books and doing something that felt like theater. And, you know, it was it was one of the one of the pleasures of, uh, of working on this film, this 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 caliber of film uh, with the caliber of actors and directors and writing, you know, that I was among. Interesting. And when doing research for this, I learned that that um, you have an architecture degree and actually worked um, in office uh, architecture office in San Francisco. That was your your former life before becoming an actor. Is there anything that you use from that that applies to your new life? I don't know. I mean, it seems like two completely different things, but I'm wondering if. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the answer is no. The, the, I mean, I can I can dig for an answer. At the end of the day, the answer is um, I have a sense of spatial awareness. I think that um, that I'm always moving around in, and and that helps me physically as an actor. Uh, but this is a, this is a different world than uh, than uh, city planning. This is you know I have the freedoms that I was always looking for in this world, and I'm I'm asked to look at myself, and I'm asked to look at the community and people in a different way. I'm still providing a service but I get to do it in, in, in a much more creative way. So, no, I definitely have taken on a completely different livelihood and, 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 a, and a lifestyle and maybe even identity a little bit to a certain degree with this. And I'm enjoying it. I don't, I don't, I do not plan on, on uh, <laughs> going that. Back. Yeah. Um, what strikes me about your career is just how fast you've been able to do 
so much in so little time. Um, I mean, you know, first Emmy nomination, you won. <laughs> I mean, you, you've had such amazing, you know, blockbuster roles and smaller ones as well. Um, and I know that you were laid off from your architecture job and that's sort of what drove you to consider acting. I mean, if that never happened, do you think that this, I mean, it's so serendipitous, do you think you would have still gone this path or I know it's, it's hard to say, but. It's, yeah, it's hard to say, but possibly much later because I did have a, I did have a secret passion for this. You know, I was, no one knew, but on Wednesday nights, I was going up the street to the, the, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and I was taking night acting classes. So. I was flirting around with the idea and, and getting laid off was really an opportunity that catapulted me into this interest and, you know, gave me the chance to really pursue this other interest that I had that I really wasn't giving my all to. But no, I, I, I liked my job. I loved my job. And I thought that I would probably go on to go to grad school and study policy and come back and, you know, probably be a policymaker or something like that. But the cool thing about this is that I get to use my voice and I get to find causes and I get to use my voice and to create a platform where I'm still speaking about uh, injustices and I'm still speaking about, uh, I still have the opportunity, you know, to learn and to speak about policy making and about improving the quality of, of, of housing for people of low income, people that come from places like where I come from in West Oakland and New Orleans, Louisiana, you know, um, so this is, you know, there's still opportunities to do the same type of important work with this uh, platform that I've given. I don't have to wear a suit to work anymore. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I can be in my sweats and kind of hang out a little bit more often than I, you know, than I was able to back then. Uh, speaking of hanging out, uh, what has 2020 been like for you? Um, I mean, I know you're working, but, um, I, you know, like the rest of the world, we're all under quarantines and lockdowns. I mean, what yeah. has this year been like? It's been, you know, I think it's been what it's been like for everybody else. It's kind of rough. It's a bit of an up and down. And then we have to look for the bright spots. You know, I've definitely been blessed that, fortunate enough to be uh, to be steadily employed throughout this time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful for that. Um, but it came with some adjustments. You know, there was some time that I spent away from the family and friends. And, and, you know, I had to spend that same type of time with myself and to say, well, what's important? And, you know, what is the lesson to be learned from this? And while at the same time, not putting so much pressure on myself to to make this all about a lesson because what everybody's trying to do right now in the world, I think is just make sense of this very strange place that we found ourselves in survive and to stay intact long enough to get on the other side. So that's been a lot of my narrative as well. I do that by watching a lot of television and connecting with friends and zoom meetings and things like that. And I get up and I go to work and I try to you know make the best of it. I think like we all have. So, it's been a year of adjustments, uh, you know, definitely come, you know, with adjustments. I so wanted to go to the Emmys and to get wear my suit to do the red carpet and the things like that. I still have to have that experience, but I have no idea what that experience is like. So it's uh, giving me a lot of reward, but it's also giving me a lot of things to look forward to uh, as well. Um, well, last question. We are, you know, you're speaking about Emmys, speaking of big awards. There's buzz around your performance and around the film in general how do you feel about that and can you talk a little bit about that yeah it's exciting you know um it is exciting it is a sign that um that i'm doing something right you know that i'm on the right path and one thing that i'm learning about about this year is that when you get the wins and when you get the bright spots take them celebrate them and enjoy them you know i think in the past i would have been a bit more modest about about moments like this um and i still approach this with a spirit of gratitude and humility but I'm I'm really um, enjoying the possibility of what this moment could be, but also what it actually is, you know, because 
big moments like this, films like this. This film is 15 years in the making, um, if, if not more. And, you know, me coming into that role was nine years into the making from the moment that I got, you know, uh, laid off to the moment where I decided to audition for Yale and to graduate and to go choose other projects and to step into that into you know step into that role so i'm really really fortunate and i'm also in really great company you know there's a lot of other names and a lot of other performances that you know from actors that i really really admire i'm really uh happy to be in, in, in amazing company um and what better reason you know right now to be in this company and in that conversation than to be a part of a project that's uh, demanding people to look to come face to face with their ideas of moral courage and to step up and to put something on the line in order to make the world a better place so um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed and honored to be in this position for, uh, for, for all of the right reasons. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you um, and good luck with everything. Hey, thank you so much. Yaya is a standout in that ensemble uh, of many standout ensembles nominated this year for SAG Awards. Uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7 is joined in that top category, um, which is fairly predictive for the Oscars, not completely. Um, by One Night in Miami, To Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, all of which uh, were snubbed in the Oscar Best Picture category, and all of which perhaps or perhaps not coincidentally have um, predominantly black cast members. Um, and Minari, which is extremely well represented here, uh, with Steven Yeun and Ye Jung Yoon, both nominated for acting SAG Awards as well. Um, this is an interesting group because it is not largely reflective of the, the top Oscar field, uh, which we don't usually see. Um, but I think it's safe to say that um, these are real acting showcases uh, in a way that perhaps um, this the branch didn't necessarily go for as much overall for as films in the Academy. Um, but what of these movies do you think, I'm curious, represents like a great ensemble piece? Because that might not necessarily translate to like the best film of the group. Um, Maureen, Maureen, what have you seen of, the, of these movies? Okay, so I've seen three. I've seen um, Minari, I've seen Trial of the Chicago 7, and I've seen One Night in Miami. So I've missed uh, I missed The Five Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, although those they're both on my list as things to, <laughs> to watch soon. Um, and yeah, I could definitely see why all of those, the ones I've watched and the ones I haven't watched, are nominated here and got missed for Oscars because they absolutely are ensemble pieces and rely so much on the the work of the ensemble to tell their story. Um, I think it's maybe why too in the acting categories, it, it was sort of all over the place for the Oscars because, you know, Trial of the Chicago 7 or One Night in Miami, it's how do you pull just one standout mm-hmm. performance from that? The film really rests on the whole ensemble and the work that they're all doing, and they all make each other stronger as well. So mm. while I'm thrilled that Leslie Odom Jr. is getting so much love for One Night in Miami because I've been a fan of his work for a long time, and I think he's extraordinary as Sam Cooke, Kingsley Benadir and the rest of the cast had yeah. equally as wonderful performances. And, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes yeah. where one person gets all the love for whatever reason. And same with Charles Chicago seven. Like mm-hmm. I I'm so glad that Sasha Baron Cohen's been getting a lot of love for it. I think it's one of his best performances ever, but I thought that Jeremy strong was, was equally as wonderful as his counterpart as Jerry Rubin. And, and he hasn't gotten a lot of attention mm-hmm. um, in terms of what I've seen, who I'd like to see win. 
I don't know. That's imp- that's impossible. I I feel uh, like they're they're all so great. Trial of Chicago Seven was probably my favorite of the awards contenders that I've seen so far this year. Uh, but I'm a I'm a sucker for Sorkin, so <laughs> <laughs> that that is all the Sorkin one could ever one could ever want. Uh, well, it's it's good that you that you liked it, Maureen, because there has there hasn't been a ton of love on the awardist podcast for Trial of Chicago Seven. That's uh, just because of Joey. That's, that's, not, Joey. that's not us. Joey's, I, yeah, I, Joey's very uh, polarized when it comes to, to certain films. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, I I found a lot of the movies, and I'll be honest, I think part of this is a function of watching this stuff at home and mm-hmm. distractions. I found a lot of the awards contenders this year slow or their pacing not to be the greatest. And you cannot say that about the trial of Chicago seven. Like it moves at a breakneck Mm -hmm. pace and holds your attention the whole time, whether you like the performances in the script or not. Yeah. One other (laughs) interesting um, part of this group of nominees um, is while they are much more racially diverse, I didn't even realize how overwhelmingly male dominated these casts are. I mean, even mm-hmm. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which has Ma Rainey in the title, is largely about the men in that film. I mean, it, it is over half of that film is a group of is a group of her male bandmates having right. conversations. One Night Miami, of course, for historical icons, Trial of the Chicago Seven, Seven Men. Uh, and I completely agree with you, Maureen. Technically 12 or 10. <laughs> yes, technically, yes. And Caitlin Fitzgerald some, somewhere around there. Uh, the, most, the most bizarre thing to me about Sasha Baron Cohen being singled out for that movie um, is, is I just don't know how one could coalesce around one person in that movie. One Night Miami, I slightly get more because yeah. he at least has the big finish. He's, you know, you really left with him, with Leslie Odom Jr. But, I mean, Frank Langella is so great as a judge. Yaya has one of the most, oh, you know, emotionally amazing. impactful scenes in the movie. Um, Mark Rylance is great as the attorney. John like, Carroll Lynch John gives Carol Lynch. a really understated, yeah. wonderful performance. For once, he gets to play someone not a terrible murderer. <laughs> and you could argue, like, it would be time for him to have a kind of moment. It reminded me in a way of when, I think John Carroll Lynch was in Revolutionary Road, and it reminded me of when Michael Shannon, you know, that movie was not a big movie for the Academy, but he got singled out and he got his first nomination for that movie. And one could argue that John Carroll Lynch could have had a moment here like that. Um, it was just very strange the way that that went with that movie. Anyway, yeah. I, I digress. No, I, I agree with you. It really, you know, obviously a lot of the conflict in the film between the group is in that tension between Sasha Baron Cohen's character and Eddie Redmayne's character. So I guess maybe that's part of the explanation. But I completely agree. Like, I, the, it seems wild to me that you could pick any one of those as a standout. They're all so important to the storytelling mm-hmm. and all really doing the most with what they've been given. Yeah, I think with but, Sasha, and I mentioned this earlier on the podcast, I think a lot of it is also collective love because of Borat, mm-hmm. which it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way for you know within a category. But I think a lot of people saw him and liked him in that and are rewarding him. I saw him and liked him in this. I mean, he's sort of the comic relief, I guess, in in a way. Um, and he's being rewarded. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that has a lot to do with it too. Yeah. Lisa, who's your um, favorite of this group of five? Oh. I think Minari. Yeah, I just, I just, I just loved, I just loved, um, I loved that movie so much. And I thought it was such a strong ensemble. Every person in that ensemble was, was fantastic. Um, And I just, and it's interesting that you point out that the, that it was so male dominated. I didn't, 
um, realize that until you pointed it out, but it's true. Um, but Minari, I think, is the one cast where the, where the, the women were, yeah. were so strong. And um, I just thought that I don't think it would have worked without, I think, without one of them. You know, like I think uh, mm-hmm. it was definitely one of one of those where it was a sum of its parts and um, and just fantastic. So that's, def- that's definitely my favorite. And Alan I'm... Kim should have... <laughs> Little I think he definitely should have little Alice so cute. Um, but yeah, I'm that one. thrilled in terms of the Minari front. I'm I'm thrilled that they got this nomination and also the Academy did better this year because um, in terms of recognizing all of those performances, because mm-hmm. that is definitely a film where if without those actors, you have nothing. They make mm-hmm. the movie sing. And it was just so infuriating last year to watch Parasite get so much love, yes. awards love and see their cast be completely ignored when they were magnificent. Um, so I'm really happy that Minari's got the nomination here and that the Academy did better in terms of recognizing some of those performances as well. Yeah. I think that this was a case where, you know, Issues aside with the, the gender breakdown, SAG really did um, spotlight really interesting ensembles. They didn't go for something like Bombshell, which is just like A-lister, 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 somehow combining for a movie. It really is like performances that work off of each other, um, even something like Defy Bloods. You know, they're really, really wonderful cast pieces. So um, a nice little spotlight there. We'll see how they impact the Oscar race. Next week, we'll get a little bit deeper into how we think they will and how they have historically um but that is all from us today thank you for joining us on this episode of the awardist and thank you to maureen for her insights into all things academy always much appreciated please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts rate us tell us what you think share it with your friends you can also head to ew.com awardist for complete coverage of this year's oscar race as well as the sag awards and follow me on twitter at david canfield 97 clarissa at clarissa nyc1 and maureen at the maureen lee We'll be back next week with perhaps my most heartbreaking Oscar snub of this year, to Five Bloods is Delroy Lindo. Speaking of <gasps> SAG Award nominees not yeah. getting their actors nominated, and more. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Awardist. Mm-hmm.